Well, this is the end of an era. <laughs> Closest friends to make her freaky. <laughs> and Wonder Boogers. Wonder Boogers? <laughs> We've already lost this segment. We have lost this And welcome to the next report, Enix and Everlook Pop Culture. I'm Thomas. I am Mitchell Brown. <laughs> and I'm Zach Dawson. And what you're hearing right now is opening of wrappers to a popular snack cake that's started out from kind of like the 1950s. 82 years. The company with well, the product Hostess was 82 years. Yeah. They were up 82 years. Twinkies. What time is it? Stop! <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I saw these things on the shelf, and I'm like, well, we're going to be doing an episode on this anyway, and they tend to fly off the shelf at the moment. These so are, these are just awful. <laughs> really? I had a tweak in years ago. God, these are just awful. No, they're not. You're <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So, I I did hear, like, a co-worker say, they're not the same. <laughs> but but here, here's the deal, right? Unless you can go on eBay and get that original mixture from November or whatever, maybe you can find some before that because they can survive a nuclear holocaust or what have you, but and to have that comparison, because I haven't eaten a Twinkie in such a long time, I'm not going to recall what one tastes well. They're good. I I, I think they're good. I know they, the, the cream of these just taste like they were made with straight fat. I feel like I'm eating whale blubber let, with let, vanilla let, extract. Let me, let me investigate on that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> For all of our listeners who have listened to us uh, over the last, uh, what, 21 episodes, we figured that we'd give you a little bit of break from foreign policy stuff, so we're going to be doing an episode on Twinkies today. And, 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 oh my, wow. What we wanted, our goal with this episode was to have, like, a fun pop culture uh, topic that we could also focus on economic issues, the social significance of the Twinkie, union labor versus non-union labor, but as as we have started going, it seems like it's going to be difficult to maintain our composure throughout it's, it's this It's going to be difficult for uh, Mitchell to maintain his composure, but that's because of all the sugar in a really god-awful Twinkie. <laughs> um... Uh, like Mitchell uh, has, has said, you know, we really wanted to bring up a pop culture 
um, mimetic device that is the infamous Twinkie and discuss some of the um, uh, the recent developments with it with regards to union labor, uh, with regards to um, other things that um, are happening with the Twinkie and also um, bring it in with a little bit of fun and extra uh, fat and bad uh, dessert cakes. Now, I'm going to get going with, uh, with um, the recent development. I guess they're not so much recent anymore. Uh, for all of our listeners who aren't aware, um, the Hostess, the original Hostess company, uh, filed for bankruptcy, uh, I think originally back in 2009. Because mm-hmm. I, I remember company. reading when doing research for the show that before the company was actually liquidated in November uh, 2012, they had gone bankrupt twice. Right. Um, and for all of our listeners who are unaware about what happened in the fallout or with the liquidation of the Hostess brand, um, they went originally went from eleven uh, facilities. I think manufacturing. Well, I, when I say manufacturing facilities, I mean like development of the Twinkie and of their other um, products. They went from eleven facilities down to four. They currently have one thousand eight hundred employees. It used to be close to ten times that amount, and um, the unions who um, were within the ranks of the bakers as well as the truck drivers. Those union contracts have gone now by the wayside, probably within the delicious uh, cream filling of the Twinkie now. And um, so we're going to be getting into some issues with regards to union labor and the decline of union labor within the United States. Um, like I've already said, um, when they were liquidated, um, there were two uh, private equity firms that had bought, or at least... Um, just pulled their resources and bought the Hostess brand. Um, if, I, if I can uh, figure them out here real quick for you all. Uh, while he's looking for that, just so people know, they are actually hiring. Are uh, they? Yes. Uh, Where? Where's the nearest plant? Uh, Kansas City, actually. For all of you. Fashion Collections Associate in Kansas City. For those who are in all you UCM graduates out there, <laughs> all all the UCM graduates who uh, who soon to be history, graduates uh, can now uh, go work at Hostess. Um, <laughs> there's also plant operations production supervisor in Columbus, Georgia. I cannot pronounce that city's name, but it's somewhere in Georgia. If you don't mind moving, so. Oh, the, the private equity firms that own them now are Apollo Global Management and C. Dean um, Metropolis and Company. Uh, from what I've gathered from news arg- uh, articles, these companies have a history of buying up um, struggling brands like Chef Boyardee and um, Bumblebee Tuna and turning them around. These companies um, have had at least pretty significant success in, uh, in turning these companies around. They are, oddly enough, trying to make the Twinkie a little bit healthier for the newer generations. That's that's ridiculous. Yeah, right. It's, I mean, it's it's, it's uh, a pastry Twinkie. with fat in it. How it's can you make it? Okay. Any- <laughs> okay. Here's the deal. The nutrition facts. It lists vitamin A at zero percent, vitamin C at zero percent, calcium at two percent, iron at four percent. But if you go to the ingredients, enriched bleached white flour. Flour, reduced iron, B vitamins, niacin, thiamine, 
mononitrate, B1, riboflavin, B2, folic acid, yet B vitamins aren't listed in the nutrition facts. It's because, according to FDA rules, if they have, I mean, like, if they have to have a certain amount of them for them to even uh, be put as having a significant source of you know, iron or vitamin C or anything like that before it's even on the box. But, I mean, it, the the company has announced that they're going to try to create gluten-free Twinkie. They're talking about putting, like, additives like peanut butter and stuff like that into different Twinkies. That could work. That could work. But, I mean, like, so, uh, but if, if the, if res by resurrecting the Twinkie, if the goal behind who Apollo Management or whoever that now owns the rights to the Twinkie, uh, I think the person who cares about watching watching their gluten intake is not the person who is going to buy a Twinkie. That's exactly talking, the same thing I said today. <laughs> you're talking about two distinct markets, two different audiences, right. consumers, two different sets of consumers. Right. Now, Maybe there's some overlap. There, there, I mean, there's some overlap. Yeah, every every Everybody's person every person who's on a diet has probably cheated on their diet at least ten thousand times. Uh, I'm just kidding. Not that much. Probably at least once or twice a week. But nonetheless, I mean, like you said, two different audiences all together. People who are eating Twinkies are not the ones who are grabbing, you know, fifty heads of lettuce and twenty le uh, heads of of uh, broccoli and. And like, trying to mix the two into a substantial diet. <laughs> They're just not. Like, a serving size is two cakes with 47 grams of carbohydrates. That would absolutely destroy the progress I've been making on my overall health. Hold on, I'm, I'm holding a 20 uh, fluid ounce bottle of a soda. And for copyright reasons, I won't mention what that soda is. But <laughs> uh, this, this soda, this 20 ounce, uh, this 20 ounce soda has... 66 grams of carbohydrates in it. Two Twinkies have two-thirds the amount of an entire full bottle of soda. That, good I God. Mean, <laughs> I don't... I don't see anything wrong with that. Like, I'm like, what? That's why, that's why I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll buy these and share them with the hosts. I'll Myself. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, pre I appreciate the <laughs> Twinkie. Even as my idea, and I said I was going to eat them on air and <laughs> make a spectacle of it. I didn't. I didn't know if I said I was going to make a spectacle of it. I don't know if you guys expected that. It's probably going to be like fun to listen to again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um. Uh. But what? Like what we what we've been talking about is is the the revival of the Twinkie. I wanted. I guess talk about. How it's used as a mimetic device first. I mean, like, the Twinkie has been in numerous movies. I think the most recent one was Zombieland, where, where, um, oh, what's his name now? The the guy who hit the zombie in the face. So I, I haven't seen the movie, but it stars Woody Harrelson. Oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Woody Harrelson, um, I think kills, like, three zombies in order to get his hands on the last box of Twinkies. And so, as a mimetic device, as a pop culture device, it's not only entertaining to talk about this, well, you can make Twinkie puns all day, but um, I think it's kind of emblematic of of our, I guess, of the like, the commodity culture of our generation, right? I mean, it's just something fast, it's something. I, I, I think I think in a lot of what I've read, and you know, Paul Krugman, 
the, the left-leaning economist in the New York Times wrote an article called The Twinkie Manifesto, and in it he talks, of course he espouses some ideas that I don't agree with, but he, uh, he ties the sort of cultural significance to the Twinkie of sort of being uh, a, a, a relic or an, an artifact from another era. And I think that's where a lot of the in November, obviously the hyper-hysteria of, it's going away! Because whether you're talking about, like, baby boomers or Gen Xers, maybe not, and I hate these labels anyway, maybe not as applicable to millennials, you have a representation of another era going away. And people are like, oh, this is a, this right here, this yellow cylinder foam object with lard <laughs> in it, is a represent, this is represents somebody's happy place. You know, this is, for me, this is what 8-bit Nintendo is. It's sort of a reminder of, uh, a childhood. And I think there's a novelty or nostalgia with it. Right. Some of the, why, why it was in not just business news and, and other, and other news formats partially because of that and why you saw the response. Right. And, it, I mean, even the owners of, um, I think the president, yeah, the, the hostess president, Richard Sieben, um, said that one of the reasons why they want to revive the Twinkie and, like, the cupcake and stuff like that is because it has nostalgic, um, uh, a sense of nostalgia mm-hmm. about them. I mean, they, they capture some sort of, some sort of essence of a generation or a particular culture of people. Um, but I think it's, I think it's really interesting that, that, that this is a, a cultural, um, Artifact. Artifact. Right. And it's an American device. It's, it's, it's the Americana of the nuclear age. This and Tang and the hula hoop all sort of sit side by side as far as the era they and, and, and cultural significance that they're placed in. Now, we talked about how the Twinkie is kind of a cultural artifact of uh, a generation gone by. Do you, do you think that the hostess... Um, in the revival of the Twinkie can actually make it an artifact of this generation? Or, better yet, what do you think are some of the artifacts of this generation? Facebook. Things that aren't things Twitter, things that aren't tangible, things that are digital, because we're in, we're in the digital age, so you don't have to create a time capsule. Just point and click. And, I think that brings up a very interesting point. This, this right here, that this, this little capsule of art, this artery hardening capsule cake. It, it's something tangible. Yeah, it's something tangible, something that people can touch. You have, you have the references in zombie films about it. You can walk into Central Pond in Warrensburg and see a little package of Twinkies in the corner of an artistic display. You can? Yes, it's um, labeled Zombie Apocalypse Survival. Oh, Game. oh, oh! I, I know who made that. Shout out to Tony Madrid uh, at a Dublin Social Club here in Warrensburg. I've gotten tattoos from him before. I think that's that's his, because I saw a picture of that on his Facebook. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's just this reference that... Um, and per- first of all, Frogman says that this thing was uh, way back in 1930. And I'm like, uh, why does it say since 1919? 
And he's an economist. I mean, should we should we grant Krugman? Well, does does it say that the hostess company was founded the host, in the nineteen nineteen, or that the Twinkie was created in nineteen nineteen? Uh, the it, on the hostess brand's website it says the original since nineteen nineteen. It lists it lists a picture of the packages of Twinkies, with cupcakes, zingers, donuts. Huh, interesting. They're they're known more for their during the fifties. Right, era. like I said, that's what it's like associated with. I said this is an era of the nuclear age. Like I said, alongside the TV dinner and the hula hoop and, and yada 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 yes. and that kind of stuff. And like I I, rem- I think I remember having Twinkies and variation there of my school lunches. Um, how about you guys? Um, I, I, mean, uh, I think I, I think I probably had like the Hostess cupcakes. I wasn't a, I wasn't ever really a big fan of Twinkies anyway. Yeah, like to me, like my <laughs> I I mean I liked them and I would eat them, but in a sense I'm kind well I could say human garbage disposal because I like to eat. Not that I'll actually eat garbage, even though some people could say this is garbage. I would eat them. I like them. I would them. definitely say that it is garbage. But, <laughs> but, but to me. What carries more, like, nostalgia for me, and maybe it's because yeah, habits. I, I went to the movies a lot as a kid. So for me, it's still popcorn, gummy bears, and Coke together. To me, that had, I, I have more, I, I, have, I have more of a, vi- of a visceral and emotional attachment to gummy bears, Coca-Cola, and popcorn than I do to Twinkie, but it's good. Speaking there, of, I'm gonna open another one. Speaking of a uh, visceral reaction, um, I, I was when I was doing uh, pre-show research on the Twinkie, I stumbled across a news article from Bloomberg called uh, "Twinkie Fans Delight in Hostess Return from Zombie Death" by Dwayne Stanford. And in it, uh, Dwayne writes that after Hostess started talking about liquidation in November, a 10-pack of Twinkies was quickly available on eBay for $24.99. A four and uh, four ten packs for ninety nine ninety nine as store shelves emptied. Searches for the brand on Google jumped eleven times higher, while searches for Twinkies increased seventeen times. Su- supply and demand. Right. I mean, well, I mean, it just has a just as a kind of a nostalgia element. I mean, I mean, clearly this is emblematic, uh, or at least, or at least resonates strongly with a particular generation or generations. And a coworker of mine did say he he still has a box of the original formula, but he bought he bought them right before they said uh, we're going back into bankruptcy. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, they've got to have passed their expiration date by now. Right. Uh, the old formula, um, I think, lasted 26 days or something like that. Somewhere in the ballpark of 24 to 26 days. Now the new formula, because of the different preservatives and additives that they put in it, now can last close to I think 45 or 46 days, pushing 50 if it was like partially frozen or whatever. Um, but um, I, I guess that's another subject I want to talk to you guys about is like the food additives in these things and also consumer choices. Do you think that, um, given the fact that obesity is still increasing in the United States, do you think that uh, governmental agencies should try to put the reins on some of these companies to possibly better their products for consumers, or do you think that the onus should be placed back on the consumers to make their own choices? Absolutely. Well, you know, I think you know what my answer would be. Absolutely not. I don't think it's, unless a company is doing something 
like putting plutonium or, you, or, 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 or razor blades <laughs> into their food. Or, uh, or, or no. radium. I, I, uh, no, I don't think it's that. The onus of that is on the consumer, I think, to do otherwise, to restrict something or take it off the market just for the simple fact that it's unhealthy, it restricts the free will of the consumer, and and where does it stop? If, if you say that the government has uh, a, 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 is a justification in banning that which is unhealthy, well, we could start with Twinkies, and then we could move on to cigarettes, and then we could move on to alcohol. So... I think we already do that a little bit. I think we already regulate consumer choices. Well, by regulation is uh, on how on how far though. Because, because in re in reality, if you want, if if politicians really wanted to ban alcohol and tobacco, that happened before and it didn't work, and we know that they would have done so by now. In reality, they're getting lots of tax revenue off of that, so that's not going to happen. And it reminds me of the whole New York soda ban. That's exactly what I was thinking of. And, and Bloomberg doing that in the state of New York saying, uh, no, this is not going to go through. We're blocking that's, this law. And that's one of, that law, I think, uh, I mean, I, I don't see that as uh, ultra-draconian or a step towards totalitarianism or some type of nonsense perspective like that, but it's using government legislation to influence uh, the, the social strata, to, to influence behavior. And I don't think that that, sh that should be the role of is your Is your claim that the government uh, shouldn't use its power to modify the choices of, of people or behaviors in general? Uh, just, I mean, all behaviors? Or the, just a specific subset the, of, of behaviors? Consumerist behaviors that may be considered harmful to the person. If somebody wants to shoot a heroin in their veins, then go ahead and knock yourself out. Huh, interesting. Um, I mean, t typical, and as you know, and you seem to give me flack for not declaring myself to be a libertarian, which I'm not. I'm an independent with libertarian <laughs> lives. Every episode. There are, no, not every episode. There are elements of that, that are elements of the party and of the ideology I agree with, and elements I do not. I'm an independent. But the libertarian perspective on crime and punishment is that criminal law should be limited to that which involves force or fraud. Somebody drinking a 64 ounce of soda or eating ardent artery hardening foods does not involve force or fraud. And, and, unless you're tying somebody down And that's that's and, that's a different and, and, matter. And, 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 down their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a different matter altogether. A very straight yeah, very very strange matter. That, well it's the whole thing about uh, you know, with, with hate crime legislations. Hate crime legislations are BS because there are already, and you've got this big grin on your face. There are already laws against murder. Is there? So, I mean, I think George Bush even said it, and I kind of feel dirty for even quoting or paraphrasing George W. <laughs> some, 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 so yeah. Nor is uh, fool me what you can't fool me. Not that he said is that well, a hate crime. Is there such thing as a love crime? Whether the motivation of killing and we're 
completely all over the place in this episode. Whether you kill somebody for $5 or you kill somebody for the color of their skin, they're both equally dead. There are already laws against murder. If somebody commits someone because of what color they are, ethnicity, sexual orientation, prosecute them to the fullest, murder in the first. And, and that's the whole thing. It's, some things to me were not meant to be, you know, manipulated, regulated, and things like that. And, you know, now you're, we're coming out with stories regarding the Obama administration wanting to do, you know, quote unquote, nudges to nudge people to do certain behaviors. Uh, oh, did I be? You no, know, no, 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 no. We just having a, we're having a side conversation. <laughs> but and that sort of thing, and and people were kind of worried about that as well. Going, wait, are we crossing a line that we shouldn't be crossing? So, so that is a very good question. Um, I I would definitely be for educating the populace on. The fact that, well, and uh, but to me this is an obvious thing. Everybody knows that Twinkies are not healthy. It's a snack. Cake. Are you really saying? Are, do you really think that's obvious? Well, no. I, I was supposed to say it shouldn't be so obvious. I mean, not all of us are biochemists, right? I mean, I'm clearly, I'm clearly a political scientist. Mitchell over here uh, is a very respected journalist. Student journal. Some people are probably laughing their behinds over. I get it. They're like, they're like, oh, Zach called himself a political scientist. Well, that's funny. Um, but I say, I, have, I am by no means a biochemist. I have almost no idea as to how a lot of these food additives interact with certain organs in my body in order to create different, uh, well, to create different things that are harmful. So, like for me, from my perspective, I think of it as. 99.999% of the U.S. population has no idea what they are putting into their body. They are not making a consumer choice necessarily as to the ingredients that they're putting in their body. They're making a consumer choice as but to I, a product. I think is uh, a product uh, being uh, being at a lower price. That's probably what they're really uh, consenting to, um, but not not to consenting, uh, like, not knowing like what type of poison they're putting in their body. <laughs> you know. Well, but, I think somebody knows that uh, what lard is, and that I think somebody knows what lard is. I think somebody. Do you know how niacin interacts with the body. Do you know no, how? No, but I to, mean... to know, to know honestly, to know the difference between so-called health food uh -huh. and so-called junk food, you don't have to know how niacin interacts with the body. That's a very rudimentary distinction that that even that small children know. Not, I mean, nobody. I said nobody's obligated to abide by it, but they know. People know what junk food is and what health food is. Besides the water and sugar, you've got corn syrup. Not just corn syrup. You also have high fructose corn syrup, partially hydrogenated vegetable and/or animal oil. Which, if you if you don't know what hy uh, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil looks like when it's in a solid, it looks like a blue lotion. It oh, kind of really? has like, the same consistency of like whipped cream. But it's like, like light blue, like a so pastel we're, we're blue. Kinda, we're kind of on the pink slime issue because I, <laughs> I think like no, because no, we've seen honestly the first time on somebody's Facebook I saw you know the pink slime memes. It looked like a like a claymation pink 
boa constrictor or something like that and you want to know what even seeing those pictures of pink slime is not going to stop me from eating chicken mcnuggets <laughs> i think i think uh at the very least I, I know that we are living in a digital age with, in which people can access this information at you know the click of a mouse, mm-hmm. and it's really easy to find information. I'm not saying that 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 it's so easy to find information now that that people that these agencies don't have an obligation to intervene. I'm saying that the people who who have no idea as to what types of things that they're putting in their body, if Companies know that these chemicals react very harshly with the human body. I think that there at least should be some motivation by agencies to at least regulate them in ways, regulate the chemicals that they're putting into products in ways that at least illuminates um, consumers as to what, what they're the putting thing in their is, body. The thing, the thing, what if, I mean, what if, for instance, the chemical, I mean... By removing it from, because for for a company, and we know this, and here's the, uh, you know, the the classic capitalist argument, or even those who frame it as being anti-capitalist. The bottom line for a company, it is the bottom line. I think if if a company takes on excessively dangerous practices, like that's why cars are recalled, it harms their profit. But if if by taking a certain chemical gives a food its flavor, and then if by taking it out, it changes the flavor of that food, that company loses profits, and that's that's really what they're concerned about, not the health of the consumer. Right, well, I mean, the consu- I, the, I, I, my I opinion is the consumer's health. If someone wants to live a healthy lifestyle, is the responsibility of the consumer, of the individual. Uh, your your argument is logically valid. I, I, I in no means trying to reduce the argument. What I'm saying is that when companies like, like Hostess and others who take, like, let's say, instead of actually putting, like, fat in um, a product, instead goes to other additives, like artificial additives, chemical additives, mm-hmm. and puts those in, knowing full and well that those additives, although they give the same taste to the product, can ultimately be... A lot more harsh on the human system than their previous um, chemical that they put into mm-hmm. the product. That there should at least be some regulation on yeah, that. I think I, I, because I, I mean, I because I mean, if, if the second if the second chemical is cheaper than the first, then like you said, the I mean, in, just unless unless it is, unless it is something that is lethal, like arsenic or or you know radioactive. Chemical. I think what instead of looking to for the government to regulate individual taste, those who are proponents of healthier living, you have these products on the market. I think the way to counteract that, to get people, if the the health of the individual is responsibility of the individual, those groups who are concerned about health step up their efforts as far as saying this does this to your body. You can change. Habits and and this that and the other through through social means without it without a government edict in some cases. So I think this is one of those cases to where that would apply. And if you want to look closely at the ingredients, one of them is high fructose corn syrup. Well, what makes corn syrup cheaper than to use than regular sugar? Well, 
corn farmers being subsidized for growing corn and other taxes and things like that, which in a sense is regulation. So we are having regulation in a sense, just not one that's economically favorable. Well, no, what you're having is the promotion of one product over another. That I mean, that in no way is really regulation. That is, that is the that is what, the propping up of one product. In what way do we have uh, yes, propping up one? Well, well, subsidies that give farmers money to grow corn, or at least offset the price of growing corn and make it less cost prohibitive to grow corn in comparison to, let's say, growing sugar cane to produce actual sugar. Um, and so, I mean, that's not, like I said, I mean, yes, there are regulations associated with subsidies. I'm not naive and say that there isn't. But um, uh, when, when you're artificially supporting one crop over another, it's, it's, I mean, there's, there isn't positive regulation. There's there isn't regulation on the corn market. There isn't regulation on the sugar market. It's just the government interceding to favor one industry over the other. And that's the whole point. Is some, there are sometimes where intervention does more harm than than good because I've noticed that price of corn is artificially low because of these subsidies, and they create unintended consequences. And now it's coming out, or it's come out in recent years, that corn syrup, well, you might as well be drinking copious amounts of alcohol with what it can do to your liver over years and years of time. So, that's the, that's the issue at hand. Now, speaking of things like this, what about the whole unionization aspect? Back when hostess, before Hostess completely went under and had things liquidated, there were unions. There were people who were part of unions, bakers' unions, what have you. Um, what's your perspective on all this? Um, do you think union? What do you think is causing the downfall of unions or the declining of unions? First off, the, the declining. The decline of unions, you have to look at when unions came to prominence and then made it possible for working class people to make that jump into the middle class. That was associated with the industrial trades. It was associated with auto manufacturing, yada, yada, yada. We see a decline of those industries. Well, associated with it, within C or a correlation, we see a decline of the unions as well. Yeah, and a lot of, um, I think, what Mitchell is alluding to here is that when you have a shift within the type of economy that you have, like let's say the United States going from almost uh, solely manufacturing to more of a service-based related economy where you don't have unionization. I would say, sir, I mean, to be you technical, have, you have certain unions. Sir, well, to me, but just, I mean, maybe it's me being like uh, a stickler or whatever, but uh, service slash knowledge-based economy. Okay, so when you have Sorry. service, when you have service-based uh, knowledge economy, you there are unions to be sure, but they're not nearly as many. There and when you're shifting from manufacturing over to union-based, you have declining unions. Now another thing that um, another thing that drives the decline in unions are when these unions do go on strike for different reasons. Production of a product still has to continue. And so, 
or when you know, a company like Hostess falls and they have to liquidate some of their assets and change their business operations, they're forced to make changes within their daily and monthly operational procedures to in order to stay afloat. I think in the case of Hostess, when they're having issues with unions trying to negotiate different things such as wages and working conditions, working days, and stuff like that, uh, a lot of... Um, a lot of internal decisions by hostess was to say, you know, how can we save ourselves? Well, one uh, one thing that we can, two things that we can regulate are the cost of our product and our labor. Mm -hmm. And union labor across the board usually is associated with higher wages, mm -hmm. and those costs are shifted back onto the consumer. We're talking about a, a company who has filed for bankruptcy twice in the last, you know, four years. We see a pattern here. We see, yeah, we see a pattern here. We, we're saying, okay, well, we desperately need to lower our labor. We'll hire non-labor people so we can then create a higher profit margin for ourselves. And nowadays, we have a lot of companies that uh, seems like, uh, seems like a culture within companies is, is to favor the bottom line almost to the disadvantage of the people working for the company to begin with. Now, I uh, Mitchell's giving me a puzzled look here, and no, and, <laughs> and I understand that 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 within within capitalism, companies have almost an obligation to its shareholders to maximize the bottom line. Now, a lot of times, the maximization of that bottom line is almost runs counter to helping the people out. I'd make the argument that if you don't help the people out within your company, you won't you have face a company. Yourself, you, face, you face a revolt. Well, you face uh, a strike. Well, yeah. Well, if, I mean, we can, if we can use like, uh, an analogy, the strike becomes the revolt. Right. But then you also have uh, external actors, not in the company at all, who say, wow, that company really doesn't treat its employees fairly at all doesn't care about whether they're on a living wage as opposed to a working wage. That is and a subjective loaded term if I have ever heard one. What, what, what subjective loaded term are you talking about? Uh, living uh, wage <laughs> for starters. Okay, he, here's the thing. Living wage. The problem with making an argument about living wage is, one, at what point do you say, is it really worth this much to do this task? Is it really worth $20 an hour to sweep floors all night? Now, if somebody has been with the company for 30 years, maybe. That's a big maybe. Uh, but the thing is, that's a big maybe for me. But the thing is, it gets to the point where it depends upon the individual. I, I, work, in a, I work for a company that is pretty much anti-union. People argue they don't pay living wages. I'm, you know, there are times where I have to make choices and decisions, but to see myself through some months. But for the most part, I can live off of what I earn because I don't have a family. I'm single. Um, exactly. What we're talking about is, to me, subjective or loaded terms. Is living wage is should an employer be forced? to pay for a lifestyle. And I'm not even uh, talking about extravagant lifestyle. If you have worker A who has no kids, and then you have worker B who has three kids, 
why why should the the wage that they get have to uh, have to be uh, manipulated to fit one lifestyle over the other, as opposed to a, a solid baseline? It's not a, it's not a manipulation of a life uh, of the wage in order to make decisions as a who or who you give more money to, uh, worker A or worker B, based off the number of kids you're getting. It's people who are living on uh, 7.35 an hour trying to live in a particular area and they're forced to work two or three jobs in order to offset basic living expenses, such as having a roof over their head uh, and making sure because of state ordinance or state laws to have the lights on uh -huh. and things of that nature. The, the, the reason why I, 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 I take so much issue with that anytime someone says living wage and it comes from my you know, personal experience. When I was 19 years old and first out on my own, I wasn't making seven twenty-five an hour. I was making $6 an hour and at the time this was above the minimum wage. My monthly take home was about $800 a month. And I had no problem living. My rent was paid on time, usually early. I didn't have a car, so I, I had money for bus fare or to get rides from friends. I had money for entertainment. So I, the lights were on. I, I wasn't going hungry. So because the living wage, the living in that, how someone budgets, the, I was able to live off of minimum wage. So when somebody tells me we need a living wage, not or above minimum wage, a, a little bit above minimum wage. So when somebody says we need a living wage, I said that already exists. Someone could live off of ramen. It's it's substance. It's it's nasty. But <laughs> it, or someone can live off filet mignon. And I mean those are two you know extreme extreme poles. And well, what what I'm saying is that <clears throat> in the era in which, uh, and this is this is obviously before. Um, before the Affordable Health Care Act is going to be instituted. So, I mean, eventually people are going to be required to get health insurance. But <clears throat> when companies um, didn't have to provide health insurance for their people, and when companies didn't have to have to support their workers in any way other than giving them wages and adhering to local, state, and federal laws surrounding employment, you have people who are quite literally living to work, or actually I should say working to live. Um, you, have, you have people who are taking two or three jobs in order to just make sure that they're able to meet other laws, such as in the state of Missouri, if you have a house, you have to, I think you have to absolutely have like electricity or something like that, or heat. I forget what the actual like law is, but I mean like you can't, like that. that's what I mean when I say a living wage, in order to make sure the lights stay on, make sure that you have at least some food. Obviously, we have social programs to kind of offset some of those expenses, mm -hmm. but again, that is transferred from from taxpayers. If, and uh, what, what I go back to is, like I said, whenever I was 18, uh, well, I, whenever I was 19, like I told you what my monthly take-home was, and that's really something that, you know, sort of like, Wow, that's a wow type of moment. You were able to live off $800 a month. My uh, electric bill in my apartment, I don't think it ever went past $70. So my meager wages, that 800 a month from the crappy fast food job I had, 
the lights were always on. Yeah, it it was a living wage. I know it sounds like I'm repeating myself. I I remember making five fifteen an hour, and that was working for Sodexo on college campus, and that and and one of the issues with working on campus at the time is you could not go beyond 20 hours a week. I was scheduled for 16 total on the weekends. And the thing is, that was just enough to, to, for gas to get back and forth to school because I did not live on campus. And I also remember the prices of you know certain products being what, certain like cheap 2 liter bottles of soda being about 50 cents, and then I've seen them rise to 64 cents, and, and you know... Probably like a buck thirty something for a two liter, I mean. Depends on what kind of... He's talking about the generic about ones. The generic... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're now at like 85. I bought one yesterday. I know. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the thing is, what people don't realize, and that's why I go back to monetary policy overall on a national scale, is when you, when people are saying, hey, can't we make this a little bit more fair for everybody? Well, the problem with raising the minimum wage, and make no mistake, the real reason why Missouri raised the minimum wage is so that there could be more tax revenue. That's the real reason. Because if you're putting people into a higher income bracket, that's more state revenue that's going to Jeff City. That's the real reason. It's not about, oh, we care about the poor. It's that we need more revenue, and we need to look good at the same time. Two birds, one stone. When you raise the minimum wage, state or federal level, you contribute to inflation. Because at some point, prices of goods and services also go up to meet that. Right, but I mean... It, and so it, you're back to square one. The, the evidence to suggest that a modest increase in minimum wage from what Missouri did from raising from... Uh, I, I believe Missouri was one of the states that had a higher minimum wage in the state than the federal level. To say that contributes to inflation in a way that is able to be to be able to show the relationship between the two. The, the evidence backing that claim is usually heavily extrapolated. Now, yes, I agree with you, Thomas, that, that the state needs to... Uh, the state probably made a decision that, hey, we should probably be getting more tax revenue because our expenses are going up across the board. More and more people, especially with the, the economic fallout, you know, more people were accessing or tapping into social welfare programs, yeah. Section 8 housing, food stamps, etc. Um, but eventually, the, the amount of money that the state is spending on these programs are going to be offsetting some of the systematic issues present within the system. I mean, if the state is able to gather more tax revenue and give some of that tax revenue to, like, say, like a struggling school district in order to increase, like, or in order to try to eliminate some of the problems with the achievement gap between the inner city and the suburbs, then, then there's, no, there's no, there's that no, op that, o that there. opens up another can of worms separately is if 
that uh, if if the heart of the problem between that gap can be fixed through purely economic means to evaluate what are the other factors in which that education can, in which that gap exists, but that's another topic for another show at another time. It is indeed. Oh my! And oh, forget it. I'm not saving these winkies for anybody but you guys. Ah, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Um, but that's one of the things I remember seeing. Now, this is not necessarily a direct correlation. It's a symptom of a deeper issue. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. A symptom of this isn't going to help matters any. Because anytime you have things like that, you have more money added to circulation, which means more national debt, which means purchasing power of the dollar drops. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg scenario as well. It is. Um, I, I want to kind of touch on real briefly the decline of labor unions just on a national level. And I guess the history of labor unions with respect to promoting improved wages, benefits, rights and protections of uh, not only workers, but just generally of people. Um, I, I, I find a lot of, I, I find a, deeply disturbing that we have not even a gradual decline of unions. We're, we're seeing kind of an exponential decline of union membership in the United States. Um, this is across industries. This not only includes manufacturing, this includes teacher unions and other types of big prominent unions that, you know, if we're speaking 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, we probably wouldn't even be talking about these unions right. membership declining. What are uh, what are your guys' thoughts about the different policies that have been instituted throughout um, presidential administrations, or even if you even want to parametricize it down to the state or local level, that these um, government agencies have implemented to, I guess, favor big companies at the expense of labor unions or at the expense of labor union efforts to promote different protections in the workplace? Well, to be perfectly blunt and honest, I think it goes more beyond that. Yeah, you have this isn't to favor corporatism or corporate corruption, but it reminds me of what John Travolta's character said in the film Primary Colors when he was this guy's running for president, and yet, yeah, 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 it's kind of a imitating Bill Clinton, it, you know, from the way he's talking. He's from Arkansas and everything. And he's speaking to a group of workers and he's saying something along the lines of, look, I'll do my best to push for you guys, but you've got to recognize that the landscape is changing in the workforce. You know, it's going, it's, everything's being modernized, it's, you know, applying, it's going to computers and everything else, but meaning you have, you have to adapt to that or you're going, you're going to be left behind. Um, one of the reasons why the big auto why auto manufacturing has not been the same in this country is because of competition worldwide, and that's something that's not taken into account. Also, looking at free trade agreements as well, is it really about free trade, or is it preventing a country from being self-sufficient? And that's not just here in the United States, you look 
in places like Mexico as well. That's also why I'm like not against immigration in any way, shape, or form, because I see the issues there happening because of free trade agreements and the drug war. There are other issues that are happening. These are just symptoms of deeper problem. I think that uh, when you talk about uh, uh, free trade agreements, I think the the final name, I mean, uh, this is going to be extremely bleak language, and I don't know how well it pertains to the issue of labor versus non-labor union, but I think, I think the final nails in the coffin of, of the, in, the industrial economy and the rank-and-file working class as we once knew it comes via NAFTA and GATT, and I think both were passed in the Clinton years. And that agreement makes it easier for CEO of company XYZ to close down production in Detroit or Idaho or wherever and send it to uh, Honduras or Ecuador or, or, where, or where have you. And in those countries, with the source production is concerned, you don't have to worry about unions. You don't have to worry about OSHA regulations. You can get away with paying somebody 50 cents or a dollar an hour and and they'll be happy for it, which is increased profit margin or revenue for for that company. Is it the ethical move if you actually care about American workers? Probably not. But that CEO, his ultimate the bottom like I said again, the bottom line is the bottom line. It is lining the the his own pockets. One, uh, one thing that's troubling to me about the elimination of union uh, unions across industry in the United States is that you have these individuals who, yeah, I mean, yes, there is a lot of um, training efforts for people who have, like, let's say we're in the manufacturing industry and they want to cross over into, um, like, data systems management and stuff like that. There's a lot of training that's done by different companies different state agencies, especially unemployment agencies, who cross-train people. But a lot of those programs, at least based on the research that I've gathered, are declining because state budgets across the board have been declining for the last several years. And usually a lot of programs that are on the chopping block are, are social welfare programs. And when I say that, I mean programs, not, not just food stamps and Section A, I mean programs such as these cross-training programs are continuously on the chopping block. So when you have the deduction or uh, reducing of labor union groups on top of programs that would allow them to transfer into a different um, position within the economy, it spells, it spells to me doom for a particular group of people. Now, a lot of unions, I, I do agree with the comments that you're making, Thomas, uh, overall, that you know, union labor does ultimately increase the price of things, and and eventually, you know, companies need to be concerned about the bottom line, like Mitchell said. I but, would, but to me, my perspective is is not that they should be concerned about the bottom line, but that they are. Whether they, well, right. whether they should or shouldn't be, they are. That's the they are. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, we just have to take it kind of uh, on a uh, prima facie that that they are just concerned about the bottom line. I, oh, I'm sorry. One moment. Oh, um, but the decline of labor unions, just uh, from a kind of a genealogical perspective, 
labor unions were able to bring about, to me, like in the 1950s, decent working wages for people. They were galvanizing political forces that were able to push for positive reforms within the different institutions of the United States, such as manufacturing, such as education. And to me, the elimination of these labor unions as a political force in favor of a more refined economy, or at least favoring big corporations in terms of managing the bottom line. To me, a lot of these, a lot of the reforms that we got, uh, that we we're able to receive from these groups are just going to either go by the wayside or they're going to be trivialized or different laws are going to come into place that privilege the bottom line above the worker. And that's, it all goes back to one thing that I've been saying the whole, well, not the whole time, but in recent years. But I want to clarify my position on unions. First Amendment basically allows for freedom of a peaceful assembly. My issue is having federally subsidized unions or state subsidized unions. That's where my issue comes into play. If they want to voluntarily, if workers want to voluntarily form a coalition to argue for better practices, um, and and depending upon the occupation, better pay and treatment, I say more power to them. My issue is when they get involved in politics, push one party for one party or another. Even even a party that I consider myself to be a part of, I would be opposed to that idea as well. They shouldn't be pushing for candidates or pushing for parties. They should be pushing for policies. And they got away from doing that. And well, Are there any particular unions that you're thinking of? Off the top of my head, not at the moment, but you, how many stories have you heard where the Democratic Party is known as pro, a pro-union party? Uh, the Democratic Party with, with education policy reform in the United States right now? I mean, right, right now, there are, I forget the two major teacher unions that are in the United States. Both of which backed policy recently to dramatically reform the nature and scope of public education in the United States to get away from the standards of NCLB, the No Child Left Behind Act, in favor of um, different policy initiatives um, that don't put so much emphasis on standardized testing um, as a as a means for gathering funding. Like that 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 to me is a more recent example of of Democrats, uh, I guess, listening to unions or being in favor of unions in, when thinking about different policy considerations. I'm simply listening at this point. <laughs> and He's eating all the Twinkies. No, I still have two left. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that, that's one of the things that I've noticed going, okay, safety, that's a great idea. Better treatment, yes, all for it. But at some point, something's got to give because people eventually realize, hey, we now know better than to throw people into a very unsafe environment. And it goes back to, unless people care about each other at this point, 
everything else is moved. You're talking about people caring for each other in a in, a, in capitalist social relations when when the emphasis is on the individual and the individualization of consumer practices. But people aren't going to be concerned with each other. People are going to be concerned with with whether what they're doing is going to be infringed or impeded in some way. Unless you have a, a complete reorientation to capitalist social relations, you're not going to have anything like that. Well, you're, you're, just, you're just absolutely not. When people are when companies are favoring the bottom line about the workers, what they're saying is that the value of the dollar, the value of the bottom line, are more important than people who work for them. That's that is like the antithesis to a a communitarian ethic within any form of economic system. What we have in this country is not even true capitalism. It's known as crony capitalism or corporatism, and I make no illusions about that. Um, in turn, what I'm saying is there can be ethics in a market-based society. The problem is convincing people to go in that direction, and it's not going to happen for several years. I, I, well, I don't even think it's a matter of any type of scale of the time in which it happens. Once again, uh, if you look at uh, the Gilded Age and what were called by some captains of industry and by others what were called uh, robber barons, uh, Carnegie, he gave much of his money away, created libraries, yada, yada, yada. J.P. Morgan Chase didn't do that. So, um, is J no, it's, it's J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan Chase is the name of the bank he started. So I don't think it's necessarily some evolutionary scale to where uh, we'll reach some type of age of enlightenment to where everyone equally cares. You have, you could have someone like Mr. Burns or Gordon Gecko to use fictional accounts, or you could have someone like Bill Gates or, or Carnegie. It's an it's the individual or, thing, or or even Rockefeller, which reason why he real reason why he donated donates what they donate quite a bit of their money is basically to look good before the public eye. It was a public relations thing more than anything else. Right. The, the issue that I take with a lot of um, pro capitalist standpoints is that they the general argument is that well look at some of the individuals who are basically your poster child, poster children of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Rockefeller, it's Carnegie, Gates, more, more recent example um, of giving millions, billions of dollars to these charities to help individuals. That, yes, what they're doing is absolutely altruistic. They're giving their money away without really any precondition. But to say that that motivates other people to give money. Oh, I, I wouldn't make that I wouldn't oh, make okay, that okay, argument okay. at all. I, I was I wasn't making that argument. Tom, you were talking about in a generalized sense getting people to care, and I'm saying with the diversity of human beings, you have some people who will care and you'll have some people who will enact or get behind policies that cut the throats of their workers. And metaphorically speaking. And that's why I said that you know, it's going to take a long time to start convincing more people. I don't think time has anything to do with it because all the time in the world will not cause a sociopath to care. You know, part part of their personality is the personality disorder is 
not caring. Or you can have people who aren't sociopathic, but who whatever, uh, you know, uh, turbulence in life become more callous. So I don't think time frame has anything to do with it. Temperament, it's, it's an extremely diverse thing. All three of us have different temperaments and behaviors and attitudes. I don't think a time scale has anything to do with it, convincing people to care. Well, I don't, I don't yeah, I don't, I agree with you that time isn't going to be the, what's going to be equalizing. I think what's going to be bringing about more equalizing kind of communitarian ethic is that there has to be, I don't know, there has to be a very profound catalyst. Not just like, not just like, you know, three or four people are shown on, on a national, uh, like news outlet in a, in like video footage of them protesting at, on Wall Street. <laughs> Not something as trivial as that. There needs to be, I mean, there needs to be a massive catalyst of millions of people speaking out against a particular institution before I think the evolutionary changes within ethics occur that you, that you might be alluding to. to get, I think to get millions of Stand in unison and first have some type of impact. I think you would need something disastrous for that type of. Uh, yeah, you know, in in this country, people aren't in other countries. We're talking about the Arab Spring or this or that, which I don't necessarily agree with. That's not what I'm saying. But in in these mass movements overseas, when people take the streets, it's because it's in response to desperate desperation. Well, conditions here haven't got that desperate. People still have American Idol. People still have their Twinkies. So to right. see that type of <laughs> to see that type of mass movement that they would have that right. type of impact, like, I think it would be a, re a response to something disastrous. Right. I mean, we're talking for like a mass movement would be like you know something like thirty or forty percent national unemployment, a gross inflation like you saw. Uh, like in um, post World War II Germany, where the the price of a loaf of bread—that's scary. That's right. not the mass. Well, that's what. Well, given where some people's heads are at, that's the type of mass movement you might see. No, no. What I'm saying is that you have to have, you have to have like, well, at least on an economic level, you have to have grave economic situations in order to create enough of a catalyst to propel somebody to, right. I guess, wash off their individualistic, capitalistic desires in favor of a more communitarian ethic that. I guess reprioritizes people above profit margins. You're not going to have that in an era where we're hyper individualized. We're more concerned with the bomb line. Stop and, Twitter time, right? And then people are more concerned with with whether you know somebody posted a cryptic status about somebody else on Facebook. Well, or, well, you are referring to something cryptic, or you're referring to something specific, but it doesn't really matter, it, right? We're we're still not talking about. Unemployment. We're still not talking about inflation. We're still not. I mean, the, the the vast majority of the U.S. populace would not care if unemployment inched up from like seven point eight percent to eight point three. Yes, it'll be talked about in the national news outlets, but darn it, a week after that story broke, nobody would be talking about unemployment unless it was in the news. But that's just me speaking as a uh, as a critical uh, media person, looking at how stories are framed and how. People respond to stories afterwards. Well, and we are about six minutes over an hour. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I know, right? Is it time to say goodbye? Yeah, it's just about time to say goodbye, and I'll leave it to you. <laughs> Who knew that a topic about Twinkies would get into the commodification of a entire 
populace. <laughs> Enter- that's the next report. You already know. Entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself. Check us out on the nextreport.com. Help us get to 100 likes. We are four away, people. If you like us... Growing a media outlet from scratch is not easy. If you like us, please just take the five minutes and invite three friends to like our page. Even if we get one like, it'll help us get to the uh, milestone of 100 likes. And with that, I'll see you all next week. This has been a... All five. Oh, this is the end of an era. Moses <laughs> Brands, the maker of Twinkie, <laughs> and Wonder Boogers. <laughs> Wonder Boogers? <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> We've already lost this segment. Oh. We have lost this right. A union strike to stop uh. cutting wages and benefits made it impossible for the company to make a profit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, look. There's certain things, you, once in a while, I've been a union man all my life. And there's once in a while you have to break with your brethren over certain things. The fact that the strike has cost the end of Twinkies. Now, there are very few things that feel better than eating Twinkies. In fact, there's only one thing that feels better than eating a Twinkie. Now, this is my, this isn't a joke. What? It's I, eating a hose. The hose is better it. than Twinkies. But, and you've got it all over you, your mouth. They're yelling at me in my ear about so something. What do, you want to, what do you want to say to me? Say it. Wait, this Each is a, the treaty. Okay. This Eric, is an important no. This is an important moment because Bob is making an important yes, point here. Yes, he is yes. a pro-union guy who you are now saying you're going to leave the union <laughs> because they got rid of something you liked. That's right. right but I also want to make an like, announcement. That could happen with For all of our fans out there who like Twinkies. I'm starting a march on Hostess headquarters, uh, which is going to <laughs> be march against next- the unions. Not Twinkie, not Hostess. Oh, I'm, my gosh. Let's wipe my mouth. Too, okay. Yeah, anyway, anybody want to join me? And also, tonight I'm doing a vigil at my apartment uh, with <laughs> candles for Twinkies, and I'm going to buy and I'm going to buy a, a storage place, and I'm going to put a 1,000 crates of them in there. And can I just make the point that you were, you were you alluded to? The unions are what brought Hostess down. There were the, the 60,000 employees? 18,500. Um, 18, employees. Um, it's going to cost the, the taxpayers somewhere around... Five four hundred fifty million bucks a year to, to put them on on uh, 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 benefits, but the point is this: they voted ninety two percent to to strike down the deal. Hostess well, presented, and Hostess said, "If you strike it down, we're going yeah, well, out of business." Why don't you blame Hostess Good job, management for that? What? Good job. Well, you can equally blame oh, Hostess. Are you management. back? Are you walking? No, back but I'm, your, I'd say uh, pots up both their houses. Promise to, to hate the unions for this? I think no, this. Do you I know what? It's really it's incredible that they could not come to this agreement over. How, we we did a story about this about eight months ago when it was first gonna, when they were first having problems right. Right. that they could not come to an agreement. It's the week before Thanksgiving, and now nearly twenty thousand people have found out that they're going to lose their jobs because they couldn't come to an right. agreement. Right. I mean, that's next. The Keebler elves, are they going to strike? Fired. I'm going to no, firebomb their trees. You know what else is going to be lost? There's cupcakes. Well, that's hostess. Right? That's important. There's donuts. I love those. Can we point something out that the producers don't want us to eat all those Twinkies because... We got yelled there's at. There's urban legend going around right now that these Twinkies are selling for $8,000 a piece. And I'm going to say, I, you want to talk about calling BS on something? There's no way. Yeah, that was an article was a, written. Stop it. It was written stop by, um, it. Uh, on Prachi Gupta wrote this story that said that, that they have a Hostess Twinkie cake adult costume that's $46.69. Bob, you might be interested in that for your little vigil tonight. Um, 
How cute. And when, I, I didn't realize that they made those fruitcake things, or the you know, pies. I'm telling you, though, this is, like this is a serious thing. I mean, for those of us who grew up on Twinkies, God, I can't. the fact that... <laughs> is that what happened? You, first of all, when I was supposed to eat the Twinkie, and you grabbed one in the break. I ate it, yeah, because I knew if we could only open one pack, that you would devour it, like, beastie-like, so I had to grab it. Why are you being so mean to me lately? I'm not. I shared yes, Twinkies are. with you. Okay, is I, she crying now? Yes, because it was so funny. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'm sorry about the opening of that thing, man, but I couldn't get through it. Something hit me. You know what we could, you know, Obama should step in and make Twinkies free. I think that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, and, and uh, to be paid by our insurance. A Twinkie or, once every month, you can or, stop by and pick up your bills twi- and the Twinkie. A Twinkie bailout. A Twinkie, bails everyone a Twinkie else bailout. Bailout wait, 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 wait. Why not? If, if this is very popular. Don't you think somebody's going to pick up this business and take off with it? Um, Eric Bowling might be. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Why don't you make don't, Twinkies? Do you think it could be a profitable business? Like somebody, somebody will buy it? Profitable. Can we sell this one? We should auction it off that Bob and I Here's shared what, and ate together. Here's what they could have done. They could have gone through a structured bankruptcy, broke the union deals, and come back non-union. Oh, and right that's union what deals, maybe Romney could do that. Way to do it. Romney, Romney turned around Romney Staples. Could it, bring, it, you know, he it, could be your savior, Bob. Romney imagine? could come and turn around the business. No, I doubt that. Well, he's got, he needs a job now, so maybe he could. But uh, the uh, the fact is that there are two sides. Of the, I, I break it with the unions on this because I do think they should have reached an agreement. But that means management needed to come to the table and reach an agreement, too, and they didn't. So, but the uh, Teamsters were blaming the other union. I know. Dude, they blame the other union, and I blame both them and the management and any other capitalist pigs that are involved. Well, I blame I was Obama. The sugar is 35 grams of um, sugar. Where are the calories? Listen, Eric knows one oh, thing. You can buy uh, these with food stamps. 290 calories. That's not That's so not bad. bad. And 40, it, 49 grams for, of carbs. Eh, is that a lot, Greg? Well, I'm going to put it this way. It, Greg, is this healthy? And you're a men's health magazine guy. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not healthy, but it's wonderful. It is wonderful. Some right, things in life doesn't matter. I'm all I can say is home. a pox on all your houses. One more thing. That's $8,000. $8,000. <laughs> oh, right. You can afford it. It's okay. I'll see you. One more thing's next, okay? Yeah, and I'm not going to be laughing when I come back because I'm going to be surprised. Oh, God, that was not a funny thing. Another exciting episode of the Next Report podcast with your hosts, Thomas Holbrook II, Mitchell Brown, and Zach Dodson. Our website is thenextreport.com, where you may view show notes and listen to our other podcasts as well as consume other content. The intro to the show is from J.T. Bruce's Plunge into Hyperreality, a part of his album Dreamer's Paradox, available under Creative Commons at gemendo.com. We are on other social networks such as YouTube, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Google+. Remember to entertain yourself, educate yourself, and empower yourself.